Well, Josh Starr and Jeff clearly have a lot in common and past friends. They are both experienced school district leaders and passionate about the moral imperative and the strategy of leading with an equity mindset. Josh is clear, honest, and able to describe the challenge and nuance of leading during challenging times. Jeff loved his book, Equity-Based Leadership, and after hearing this discussion, likely you'll want to read it as well. Enjoy. Ladies, gentlemen, educators, leaders, how are you? Welcome to Leader Chat. I am Jeff Rose, and uh, I'm sitting here anxious. I'm excited. I'm, I'm giddy. And it has to do with our topic and our guest. In fact, I'm nervous because I am so excited and enthusiastic about this topic. Um, I'm nervous on how we're going to squeeze it all in. And the book, as well as the author, are just so relevant and so exciting. This is it's going to be tricky, so uh, wish us luck. We know our viewers, our Leadership Circle members, are either watching this live as we air it, you are watching the recording that we're sending to you, the video, and then, or many others are listening to the publicly available podcast, Leader Chat. Um, today, we're talking about something that's, that's not easy to talk about. So the concept is equity-based leadership. And I'm going to be talking with the author and a past colleague and friend of mine, Joshua Starr, Dr. Joshua Starr. So um, the book that we're actually engaging in, which really delves into Josh's experiences and exposure and strategies to equity-based leadership called Equity-Based Leadership, Leveraging Complexity to Transform School Systems. So let me read uh, his bio to you, and then let me bring Joshua on the air with us because um, we got to jump in as fast as we can. Dr. Joshua Starr has been the Chief Executive Officer of PDK International since 2015. Under Dr. Starr, PDK has expanded educators rising across the nation. He is the author of numerous essays, books, chapters, and op-eds, and writes monthly column called On Leadership for Cap'n. Prior to joining PDK, Joshua Starr was superintendent of schools in Montgomery County Public Schools in Maryland. This is where we knew each other for nearly four years and previously superintendent of schools for Stamford, Connecticut for six years. Dr. Starr began his career teaching special education in Brooklyn, New York. He became a central office leader in school districts in the New York metropolitan area and has served in the New York City Department of Education. Dr. Starr has a bachelor's degree in English and history from the University of Wisconsin, a master's degree in special education from Brooklyn College, and a doctor in education from the Harvard University Graduate School of Education. Dr. Starr and his wife have three children who have all gone through public schools. And ladies and gentlemen, without further ado, let's welcome Josh to chat with me. Josh, I read your bio. What did I miss? And tell us how you've been. Uh, well, thanks so much for having me, Jeff. And and can I join your circle? Like, I, I the, the the work you're doing is awesome. Uh, I just think it's so needed for leaders these days. And I wish I'd had it when when I was a soup. And to keep this short, um, just ask me yes or no questions, or maybe multiple choice, and and we can. Yeah, we can yeah, that's that. right. A, a, B, or C. Yeah, that's right. And it's funny whenever anybody reads my bio, you know, you always do these things. It sounds like all these accomplishments. I I need to start giving folks my alternate bio. 
which is all the mistakes I've made and the failures I've had and, and roadblocks and, and all the things that I wish I had done differently, woulda, coulda, shoulda. Uh, and, and that would actually tell the real story of, about leadership and about my leadership at least and, and the superintendency. But no, no, this, that, this is baloney because I shortened your bio. I, 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 right. It was longer than right. this. I shortened it to get to that. And I mean, obviously that's the one thing about bios, right? It makes us all yeah. sound pretty good. Uh, right. it's, it's like turning in, you know, a CV or a resume when in the meantime, um, we're all hot messes to a degree, aren't we? Yep. That's yep. absolutely true. So yeah. how have you been? I mean, how about this? Just, you know, the last couple of years, we know that you're leading great work, but I mean, just you personally, how are things? We've had a, we've had a rough go in the world of education as well as just being dads and husbands, yeah. et cetera. How have you been? Yeah, no, I, I appreciate that. I, mean, I I've been doing great. I mean, I cannot complain. We're healthy. You know, all is good. I love my work. I, I got a great setup. Um, you know, I, I tell people all the time I loved being a superintendent of schools. Absolutely loved it. I love not being a superintendent of schools, too. And the work we've been able to do at PDK uh, with, with Capin and, and all my writing has been great and the leadership work, but also the Educators Rising work where we're inspiring a new generation of young people to take up teaching has, has just been tons of fun and I've been learning and growing and 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 I look at what people are doing in the field and the public narrative around leadership it's you know everyone's like oh my gosh you know it's it's so hard it's, it's so this, and it is but I'm also talking to superintendents who are really inspiring and doing some really amazing things with their communities um, in the face of the pandemic and in the face of the insane, you know, anti-CRT laws, and and they're finding ways, and and I feel like we need to tell more of those stories of hope because there are a lot of great leaders doing good work out there, um, and anything I can do to amplify that, I'm just really proud and privileged to do that. So you and I have both, you and I have both said uh, to each other how it sometimes feels refreshing not being in the seat, right? Yeah. Because uh, you and I live a little bit more on the balcony, as Heifetz would yeah. describe it right, as opposed to just, you know, getting crushed on the dance floor. However, I think that at times we both feel pangs of guilt, kind of not being in the trenches, doing some of that work. It's a really interesting balance that I know that I'm navigating on a day-to-day -day basis. I love what I do. I'm not yeah. questioning it. But in the meantime, I just being, have, I've sat in that seat and I have not led through COVID, and for some reason, that makes me feel a bit guilty. Does that make any sense? Yeah, it, it does. I mean, you know, look, I, I've been real honest that if I had my way, I, I would have still been superintendent in, in Montgomery County, you know, up until uh, probably last year. That, that was the original plan to do 10 years, not four. But things happen, as you well know. Yep. Um, so, so I feel, you know, it, it may be a little bit of guilt. Um, I'll also tell you quite honestly, there's a little bit of arrogance and competition that I feel like I, I could, some of the decisions, some of the bad decisions that have been made and you know, you got 13,000 districts out there not every leader, uh, you know, has made good decisions um, while some have knocked it out of the park, you know? Um, and I feel like I, I, I wish I had had the opportunity to show what um, you know? What what you can do as a community, um, and what you can do as as a leader to to get through really difficult times. But it, it is what it is, and and I'm happy doing what I'm doing. And you know, any opportunity that I have to kind of help leaders reflect on how they do the work, uh, and and how they can get better, and do it in community like yours, I just think is is also beneficial. Um, and I just put take my hat off 
uh, to anybody who's just been doing the work um, as a superintendent of schools over the last few years in what is becoming increasingly brutal territory. Um, and yes. and they just have, I just have so much respect for them. That's, that's, the, that's the title of your next book. It's called that's Brutal right. Territory. Yeah. Yeah. So you've always been this, this champion for equity ever since, ever since I've known you, right? This has been right. kind of a cornerstone um, for your leadership. Um, now, writing about it in this particular way, and this, this book is, is it just hot off the press, by the way? Is it literally? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, so yeah. I, I think I got an early copy or something because I have. Yeah, you got an early copy. I think it started arriving in, in mailboxes uh, or on doorsteps, you know, like a couple days ago. So. Yeah. Okay. So um, I have I have gone through this and you mark the heck out of it. And uh, and I'm going to throughout the our conversation, I'll, I'll gush over this book because it, it's great. But just maybe talk us through the, the why behind it. I mean, maybe beyond just your passion for equity. Like what was the motivation, motivational factor of, you know what, I got to write this down? Yeah, so I think a, a few things. One, I love to write, um, you know, and I've been writing my column and I've been writing, you know, book chapters and essays and all that. And I love to write. And I thought, you know, I should, I should try writing a book, you know, I have it on me. And then when I, I was, as I said in the acknowledgments, when I was hiking with my family and I think my, my youngest kid might have been about eight then and I said I was writing a book. He's like, really? So then I was like, oh man, I, I, I better do it if, if, uh, if my youngest kid feels like this is a cool thing to do. Um, so so I just always wanted to write a book. And, and I feel like, you know, it's sort of two things. One, I learned from some really great equity warriors um, of the past generation. You know, so my mentor, Larry Leverett, who I talk about in the book, people like Carl Cohn, Tom Pezan, Rudy Crew, you know, Beverly Hall before she was in Atlanta and all that. You know, some people, Jerry has like people who were doing powerful work, Stan Posman, the list goes on and on. Um, and I was really privileged to learn, you know, over under the, the auspices of what Bob Peterkin and Linda Wing created um, to learn from some great people who had been doing this work pre No Child Left Behind, um, and nobody really told their stories. And I was like, you know, we we need to have more real examples and stories of how to go about organizing an equity agenda for the community you're in, because so much of the literature out there, I feel, is about their these kind of if there were just arguments if we just had no unions if there were just businessmen running school districts if we just had more choice you know whatever it may be and it's just not that easy there are no panaceas or silver bullets but i feel like there's been a a pretty dominant narrative during the reform era about you know oh well if you just you know um did zero based budgeting then you wouldn't have any resource problems right um, and that's just not true. And and the leaders that I knew that were doing the work, both the mentors and, and the models, but also my peers that I talk about in the book, they were the ones who said, wait, this is really, really complex. Let's figure out the different levers that I can pull within the system that I'm in to drive an equity agenda. And that's what I tried to do when I was superintendent. It's what I tried to do when I was designing accountability systems and you know in senior leadership uh, positions. And so I just kind of wanted to bring voice to that, and and I wanted to ground it in in models, you know, in research or or frameworks, you know, whether it's policy governance or whether it's Marshall Gantz's work and sort of the story of self us and now. So I wanted to just kind of be able to to provide a a grounding in a in a con in conceptual frameworks about how to lead equity based work provide real examples of people who have done the work and then reflect on my own experiences and, and what I've learned throughout so that as leaders are mapping out 
or refining their own equity agendas, they can understand that there are sort of these six different ways to enter into it that can help them drive and improve and, and even accelerate their own tra equity-based transformation agendas. So I have some thoughts and, and many questions about how, how you did design uh, this book. Um, but before I get into that, I, I want to ask you about what's, what's that? Painfully. Anybody's written, it's, it's hard. It's so hard. To, it like, is hard. I, writing closet, editing. Yeah. Anyway. Here's, but, but what about leading right now equity work? I mean, so obviously when you started this, this is prior to probably some of the political polarizing that it continues to occur. This, um, you know, political CRT conversation and what's happening in states and the fact that places aren't allowed to use the word equity for a variety right. of reasons now. So what are your thoughts before we go into the book just on leading equity now based upon the complexity of even what it used to be like? So I, I'm fortunate in that when I started as superintendent in Stanford when I was 2005, in, in 2005, when I was, I was 35, I was dumb, didn't know what I was doing. But I had been trained by and supported by and mentored by people, particularly Larry, who were doing equity work and talking about it um, er early on. I mean, so when I started detracking the Stanford Public Schools back then, it was kind of new. People were just starting to talk about equity work and it wasn't, you know, um, as prevalent as it is today. So what's interesting about now, um, you know, there's certainly the, the, churn on top right if you think about the the iceberg metaphor where you know um the, the iceberg is only you only see the tip and underneath is where all the stuff actually happens um you know people are seeing the anti-crt stuff and the, and the book banning stuff and that's real i'm not suggesting it's not but i also think that over the last you know 15 years or so or 18 years there's been this real shift on the ground amongst teachers and principals and um, others to recognize that equity and social justice are essential parts of any school system's agenda and has to be baked in. So I, I, I imagine that a lot of folks are finding sort of stealth ways of going about doing it. You know, you, you do it, you don't talk about it. Um, show, don't tell. Um, and, and I think that the leaders out there have to be super, super smart about how they engage the, the 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 folks who may be in the middle, right? There are, you know, look, we are consumed by the fringes all the time, but both most people are silent but reasonable. Yeah, it's kind of like the kid in the class, you know, who is like acting out all the time, and the other kids in the class are looking at how you handle that kid, right? And so there are a lot of people that are looking at leaders who may be silent, and they're looking at how do they handle the crazy parent that comes and rails against them at the school board meeting. They're not agreeing with them. They want to see how the leader handles it. Um, so, so I want to say also, you know, this is pure conjecture because I'm not in the arena um, and I don't want to, you know, claim that I have any experience doing it in the way that it's happening now in, in places like Loudoun County, all around the country. But I do know when I was doing this work in Connecticut and Stanford, and I had a very vocal, aggressive, politically connected group of white families that was actively organizing against me, everyone else got on board because they looked at how I handled them. 
and and I, I I handled them pretty well, I think. And they eventually went away, and we got our stuff through. And it wasn't easy, of course. You know, they got people elected to the school board that were against my equity agenda, um, and they railed against me in the newspaper. And sometimes I fought back, and sometimes I let it go, and I just kept moving with the work because I knew the work was real. So I'm I'm hoping people, you know, leaders, again, not to diminish in any way the seriousness, particularly when we're talking death threats and things like that. It's, it's bad now. But if you're doing the right thing for kids, most people will come on board because most people are silent but reasonable. Yeah. So the, you, the, 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 the book, it, 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 number one, the good news is it sounds like you. Uh, it really does. Your voice comes through. And, but it also, what I appreciate is it sounds like you talking to leaders. And so as, you know, a, a past leader in the seat, I felt as though um, it was you providing me with narrative and story, but also strategy. I, I wrote down it was this perfect balance of philosophy, vision, with the mechanics of the system, and leadership strategy. So, which I thought was, was really important and actually pretty unique. Was that really intentional that, hey, I want to provide narrative and maybe some open discussion around the complexity, but I also want to provide some level of guidance on, you know, key levers in the meantime. I mean, is that how you went strategizing? Because that's exactly how it came across. It kind of slapped me in the face that way. You know, hindsight 2020, I'd like to think that when I first started writing, I had this really good roadmap and it came out exactly as I thought it would. You know, my first two chapters were really, really hard. I had to go back and rewrite um, a lot. And and part of it is the, in, in some ways, and I haven't really thought about this that much, Jeff, but but I'm going to try to articulate now. In some ways, the, the, the journey of writing a book is much like your leadership journey in that, like, we don't spend that much time as leaders actively reflecting on what we've done that has either made us successful or or hurt us in any ways or hindered our ability to move an agenda. Um, and we just kind of do, right? You're just kind of acting. And it's the same way with writing. You know, I, I wanted to give people and give leaders and system leaders in particular, superintendents, deputy superintendents, assistant soups, some very practical examples and advice about what they can do. Um, and, and that was really important to me. And I also want to be honest about things that I wish I had known or, or wish I had done differently and and try to expose some of the things that, you know, other folks have, have done. And I will tell you with the stories in the book, there are leaders in there that, you know, I, I profile that haven't had, you know, were, weren't gloriously successful in some ways. And I think that's, that's important to recognize that, you know, um, you, you can do great things and still not be successful in some ways or, or you know, uh, or, it didn't come out the right way. You can you can try to do great things. You can you can you can sort of follow a clear strategy, and it still may not work, right? And that's sure. okay, and that's part of leadership. So I tried to put all that in there in a way that was very accessible to folks. And and I was also honestly thinking about like you know if I was a new superintendent, what's the book that I'd want to read and maybe want to read with my cabinet that would help me under you know understand how to design an equity-based transformation strategy. So that I, I appreciate you saying that because I, I I wanted leaders to kind of feel like I was speaking to them. So talk to us then about the the genesis um, or summarize this, you know, the six six, six entry points, right? I think, mm -hmm. I mean, it's kind of how it was designed, but 
maybe just walk us through briefly um, and then kind of we'll take it from there. Yeah, so um, so the the entry points, and I actually struggle with what's called guiding principles, entry points. I say, you know, I'm, I'm going to call them entry points because that's just the way I think of the world, right? You have to create multiple, leaders have to create multiple entry points for people to engage in equity-based work. And it's not the same for everyone. And being strategic about that is important. Um, so values, right, is, is critical. You know, what, what do I believe? Um, what are my own personal values? What do we as a community believe? about kids and about families and about um, teachers, right? Content, teaching and learning. What do we expect kids to know and be able to do? And what do adults need to do in service of them? And you'll notice, I, I think in questions, so it's about asking those questions, right? So, so content, right? What's the stuff? What do we do every single day? Decision-making, who gets to make what kinds of decisions about what, and is it clear, right? Do, do teachers get to make decisions about curriculum? Do principals, does the central office, right? What's the role of the school board? How do we make decisions and how does it reflect our values? Um, resource allocation, uh, do we allocate our time, our talent, and our funding towards our vision and our needs? Is it clear, is it transparent? Do people know um, you know, how we allocate our most precious resources. Uh, talent management. Who, who are our people? What do they need? How do we ensure they're most successful, right? Eight, at least 85% of a school district budget um, is, is people. Uh, do they have what they need to be successful? Do you have a clear, comprehensive approach to making sure you're hiring, recruiting, developing, sustaining, and holding accountable the people in your system? And finally, culture. How do we interact with each other, right? How do we come together in, in this you know, system that we have, in this ecosystem that we call school and a school district, how do we interact with each other, with our families, as people to actually drive the agenda? So whichever one, you know, certainly like teaching and learning is the thing that we do, but it's not the only thing. We do it in relationship to all these other elements in a school district. And when you're designing and accelerating and implementing an equity agenda, if any of those entry points haven't been attended to, you may not be able to fulfill the vision that you have. If you haven't really thought this all through and, and involved others in collaborative ways and interest-based ways um, and, and, and really you know, be comprehensive and thoughtful about how those pieces fit together in your, in your transformation agenda. You know, um, Josh, you're a very reflective but also honest leader and uh, I mean, I, I look back on my past and leading, and I sometimes I shake my head thinking, what was I doing? Why, why did I do it that way? Or why did I swing the bat at that issue? Or I wish I would have swung harder on this particular issue. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you, you, you describe that leaders need to really focus on, you know, what hill they're willing to die on, right? Mm -hmm. So when you look back, do you think that uh, just kind of reflecting, would you, would, did, you, did you go to the right hill? Would you change that? Or would you just change your battle strategy? How would you describe reflecting back on the concept of what hill to die on and then how you strategize or you know, go to battle with that? Oh, man. I, so I would say in Stanford, yes, because it was so clear. Right. The system was really I won't say it was broken, but, you know, it's district of, of 20 schools, uh, about 15,500 kids. Very, very diverse. I mean, you know, we're talking we're talking about 35 percent white, 40 percent 
um, or about 35% Latino, 22% uh, black, about 8% Asian, something like that, 35% free and reduced price meals. And every school, um, I don't know if that math added up, but you get my point, right? Yeah. Every school, because someone's going to check it and be like, you got it wrong. <laughs> uh, it, it, you know, um, I'm still paranoid. Uh, every school was 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 um, desegregated or integrated. So they, it was it reflected the demographics of the community. We had a very complex voluntary integration system. But within schools, kids were tracked, like rigidly tracked. And it was just clearly the hill I was going to die on. I knew from July 1st, 2005, when I took over the system, you know, that that was the work. Um, and and I wish I had done some things differently, but I'm very proud of, of what we did and that it lasted. Um, you know, the Montgomery County Hill was very different because it was considered, you know, gold standard district, best district in the country, large district in the country. Everyone read the book and all that. And when I got there and the board said, look, go slow, get to know people. They had actually had signed contracts with the two top deputies that were like, we're keeping them for a year. So like, I was like, okay, basically I'm here to maintain the status quo organized towards common core because it was 2011, organized an agenda towards the common core during a recession. So we have much less money and everybody has to feel really good and nice about it and have a seat at the table as we design a new agenda. So the Hill wasn't as clear initially, but I found quickly that it was culture. Um, the culture was not one that was conducive towards the kind of innovative adult practices that we needed to get to the next level of equity and to frankly meet the higher standards that were in Common Core at the time. This is, remember, this is 2011. Yeah. Um, and I believed in those standards. Uh, and culture is a different kind of hill than something like tracking, right? Which is so clear. Open up access to black kids, Latino kids, and poor kids, right? Into advanced placement classes. Okay, done. You know, you can't change culture by memo, right? You, you can't, you know, you, you have to find different ways of inspiring people to be innovative and to take risks and to do new work. So so I think it was a little, there were maybe multiple hills um, because the system was so high functioning operationally. Uh, and I think that's a challenge that leaders have, you know, when they go into a certain kind of context, right? Um, you know, which is part of what I try to talk about in my book that, it's, it's going to be different hills in different places. Um, you have to know your values, right? That's why being really clear about who you are and what you bring and your story is essential. So like I, when I got to Montgomery County, you know, I started talking about social emotional learning. Nobody talked about social emotional learning before I got there. And that just opened up a floodgate, you know, and like the idea that we have to know our kids and they have to feel valued and loved and respected. Um, so that became a hill in ways, but it wasn't as clear as, it, as in my previous district where it was more, you know, just, just it, it was a little more broken, quite honestly, yeah. and straightforward. You know, I, I love that um, in, in equity-based leadership, you really focus uh, part of the book on decision-making. I mean, I, I don't think we talk enough about how to make decisions, the kind of yeah. process. And you describe how you have to ingrain integrity into the decision-making process, of, which makes a great deal of sense. Can you though, also talk to us about balancing that with the challenge of, you know, the current governance and board, uh, you know, sometimes fiasco and challenges. I mean, creating integrity-based decision 
and working with and navigating the politics of the board, that's, that's like you say, nuanced and sticky at times. What, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, so, so you know, a, a lot of people from the outside don't know that uh, the only uh, decision that a superintendent gets to make on their own is a snow day, right? Nobody wants to touch that way. Every other decision, there are guardrails. Um, Lots of them. Yeah, that folks don't know about. And certainly the board is, is one of the biggest ones. And, and so when I talk about integrity and decision-making, for me, it's, it's about the transparency of it, right? Is it clear why you're making the decision? What the problem is you're trying to solve? Are the data or information that you've used to make the decision available and transparent to folks, to, to an extent reasonable, obviously, if it's you know, personnel, you may not be able to. Um, is the timeline and the process for it gonna be held to, right? Um, so that way, when you come out with a decision that not necessarily everyone's going to agree with, can they, do they trust that you did what you said you were going to do, right? And that's what it really comes down to. It's not about everyone's going to agree with me. It's that they say, okay, I trust that Star made the right decision. You know, I, I don't necessarily agree with Rose, but you know what? He did what he said he was going to do. And so that's, that's what integrity means to me. Um, you know, I think that, that, the most important thing when making decisions is being really clear up front about who gets to make it. And is this something that say, okay, the board is going to make a decision about changing bell times. I am going to present to them a comprehensive process or a comprehensive recommendation. Here's the process I'm going to follow, et cetera, et cetera. Or I'm going to make a decision about whether or not we're going to open up advanced placement classes to all kids. Or we're going to let principals, whatever it may be, being really transparent up front about how the decision gets made, why there may be some confounding variables in it. We have to negotiate it with the union. The state has certain procurement rules. The district has a policy. Um, or, hey, we want to do this in an interest-based way, which we've never done before, where we don't talk about positions. We talk about our interests and our values, and here's a process, and we're going to actually learn a new process. Or we're going to involve community members in ways that we haven't before because it's really important. But here's who we're choosing and why. And I, you know, one of my mantras has become: we need to slow down the inquiry to speed up the action. And, and I actually get that from um, Irma Tyler Wood at Thoughtbridge. I uh, kind of modified hers. But we have to slow down sometimes. What's the problem we're trying to solve? What's the process we're going yeah. to use? And you know, that's not the orientation of school districts and leaderships where you just go from meeting to meeting to meeting and you, you only get, you know, superintendents only get the bad decisions, right? No, nobody, no, nobody comes to the superintendent and says, oh, make an easy decision. You don't get to deal <laughs> yeah. with the tough stuff. But yeah. the, the extent- no layups. That, yeah, that's right, that's right. And but to the extent that you can be consistent in how you approach it, um, and again, slow down the inquiry to speed up, which speeds up the action, the less likely you are to, to, to make mistakes. And so at the end, people come out and say, yeah, I get it. Maybe I agree with it. Maybe I don't. But I understand why they had to make the decision they made. You know, there's this, there's, you, you mentioned earlier uh, around resources and allocation. And yes, you know, 80 plus percent really is in people, right? Which, of, which of course, is as it should be. Um, however, you also talk about in your book about you know balancing the the vision and need. So when you look at uh, if you were to advise people right now, leaders, superintendents, on resource allocation specific to those two things, what would be, what would be your general advice to them? 
Well, you know, in, in so many ways, they're drinking from a fire hose right now with all the federal dollars coming through and, and state dollars. And the, I'm, I'm afraid that that folks are going to be, you know, they're going to turn around the state legislatures and the, and the naysayers are going to turn around in a year or two and say, look, they wasted all that money. And what folks don't understand is the, the need to A, be thoughtful and B, some of the procurement rules within districts and within states. Um, so be careful. Uh, so, but, but I would say that, you know, the, the main issue to think about is how you allocate your people. And when you're trying to drive an equity agenda, you're, you know, your people are, are your most important resource anyway, but how you think about whether or not you are putting your, your best and most effective educators with your most vulnerable kids is the number one equity lever you can make. And then you have to look at how you are purchasing materials and resources in support of what those people want to do in schools, right? I talk a lot in the book about principal as the most important person in the district um, and how we have to support great principals um, and they should be driving the work. Cause I've never seen a great school without a great principal. So again, this goes back to decision-making as well. So if you put a principal in a school where they are driving an equity agenda, do they have the resources they need in their schedule? Um, do they have the materials they need? Have they allocated their time um, most effectively? You know, are you pushing in with ELL or pulling out? That's a resource, right? That's a time issue. Um, so, so I would encourage people to think about um, the time and people more than they think about money because you can always buy stuff, right? You can, you can always buy new curriculum. You can always buy supplemental materials. You can always buy stuff. It's getting harder and harder to buy people these days because of the shortages, but yes. how you actually think about time and how, um, and actually Lori Nazarene writes a lot about this. Um, you know, how you use the schedule, think about the schedule as a, as a precious resource so that you're maximizing learning time for adults right, which is such an important lever for school improvement. You know, those are the kinds of things that you should look at as well as, okay, how much money am I, am I spending on my English language learners to make sure that they are getting what they need? How much money am I spending on my kids who aren't reading on grade level, whatever it may be? Um, you know, that, that's important, but I, I would start with time and people because if you don't have those resources set first, uh, you know, you're not going to get as much bang for your buck, so to speak. Okay, I, um, I know I'm getting running short on time, but I got to squeeze this question in. You have this, the, your chapter on culture, there was this section, uh, it's called Control or Influence, with a question mark, Control or Influence. And I, I want to read you this quote, because it, it, it stood out to me, and I want to get your reaction. Superintendents can't control everything, even though many stakeholders think otherwise. An essential leadership skill is to know what you can't control and what you can influence. When it comes to sustaining an improvement culture, a superintendent should be sure to control what they have clear authority over while working to influence what they don't. Talk to us quickly about the concept of control versus influence, because I think sometimes there are many that don't understand or think through the difference. Yeah, so I think I think this goes back to knowing your core and your own values um, and knowing what you're going to be most comfortable with. So if I can control the placement of a principal in a school and I know that that school needs a lot of help and I don't do it, then that's on me. 
right? If I leave someone in a school that should not be leaving that school. But if I can't remove the teachers in that school, let's say replace them, not that you necessarily want to, but I only have influence over them, then I need to do everything I can to inspire the folks in that school to embrace an, an equity agenda. So, so first is, is like knowing, you know, and simply analyzing it, right? You, you, you do a chart. Do I have control or do I have influence? And the second is, okay, can I go to bed at night? knowing that I've left a principal in a school that I actually do have control over, even if I'm going to take hits from the board or whatever it may be. So it's, again, this, this idea that, that leaders and superintendents have to be reflective and really think about what, what gives them joy and pleasure in the job, what makes them feel good about it, even if they're going to take hits and get beat up. Um, and sometimes, you know, you, you do have to, you, oftentimes you have to compromise on that. But being really clear as well about what strategy is going to be, right? I can't control how the principal assigns teachers to kids within that school. That's the principal's job. But I can certainly influence how the principal does that through my supervision of him or her, right? And I can control who that principal is. So just being really, really clear about which one falls into each bucket and how you are supervising and leading your cabinet level folks and your central office folks to have those same conversations about what they control and what they can influence and then guide them towards one or the other strategy uh, that they need to employ to actually get the result that we want. You know, Josh, most of uh, the leadership circle is uh, specific to roundtable processes, you know, protocols, leaders helping leaders. We say circles are better than rows. Yeah. Let's pretend, and I ask this question of, of all of our leader chat uh, members, is that let's pretend that we're at a, we're at a table, right? It's a roundtable. There are many leaders from different parts of the country sitting at it. And while you wrote this really dense, impressive book around equity-based leadership, you want to leave them with something. You want to leave them with some last piece or memorable aspect of pragmatic advice. What would you say to them? Um, I know this is a hard question, but what would be your you know, really, really brass tacks advice for them at this moment leading equity? So I think you know thyself and, and know, know if you're Moses or Joshua. I am not religious in any way, shape or form, but I do think that that, that construct is an interesting one. Are you, are you Moses where you're leading people out of something? You've got to break a lot of, you know, you got, you got to break a lot of eggs to, to mix metaphors. Right? Or are you Joshua, where you're leading them into something and, and it's for sustainability? And, and how do you personally feel as you are in those sp that, that space? And what's important to you? And what, what gives you energy every day? It's like you know, Carl Cohen talking about the kid fixes and, and what gives you energy? And do more of that which gives you energy so that you can place yourself in the, the right place. Either I'm breaking down barriers and I'm busting some up, something up to build something better, or I am, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm in a new place where I'm, or I'm helping people really embrace a new way of doing business. And, you know, it's obviously not, not that clean, but you really have to know who you are and why you do the work you do and what makes you happy um, in, in the work. Because even though the job is brutal, it's such a joyous, wonderful job in so many ways that gives you such strength and hope. And, and do more of what you love doing, you know, but if you, you, if you haven't spent time knowing yourself and what you're good at, uh, then you're not going to know how to make sure you're doing more of that every day. Uh, Josh, you're the man. 
And uh, I've taken too much of your time. I just want to say that the work that you have done and you are doing, and maybe even more importantly, which I, which I think you will be doing, um, is really, really valuable. Um, I, I'm, I, I just feel blessed to know you and call you a friend and a colleague. And uh, thank you so much for this. I, I have a feeling we're going to be calling you back in six months based upon some of the reactions we're going to get from Leadership Circle members. So this is, uh, this is, this is awesome. It's been fun. Well, thanks so much, Jeff. I, I really appreciate it. And what you're doing is fabulous. It's so important. So just th thank you. And, and you know, I'm, I'm happy to talk anytime. Absolutely. All right. Well, ladies and gentlemen, um, clearly, uh, this has been a really valuable discussion. And I'm so thankful we had opportunity to, to, to talk with Josh for a minute. And uh, I really highly recommend you delving into equity-based leadership. And uh, we're going to be following up on this and um, more to come. In the meantime, thank you leaders, educators, teachers for everything you're doing and doing the noble work of serving kids and communities. Be well.